This morning's scripture reading will be from Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 10. I'll be reading from the New King James Version, located in your pew Bibles on page 1033. I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God, or do I seek to please men? For if I please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Whether we like it or not, we live in a world that desperately needs good news. It doesn't take very long watching the events that have taken place this week to see families who are stranded, homes that have been destroyed, buildings, and even towns and cities that have been demolished, to realize that our country needs some good news. There will be people coming our way, and there probably are already, people who have suffered that kind of loss that has taken place this week. They need our love and our compassion. We want to give that to them. They need good news. They're struggling, wondering what they're going to do next, where they're going to go from here, and we have an opportunity to minister to them. But it's not just our country that needs good news. When we look around the world and see conflicts and wars and even increased attacks, uh, terrorist attacks in other nations, we realize that our entire world needs good news, and we need it desperately. When we think of the term gospel, what gospel really means is good news. When we preach the gospel, or when we share the gospel, we're sharing the good news. And what's amazing is we're sharing the gospel in a world that desperately needs to hear some good news. Now, when we think of the gospel, we usually think, of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the four Gospels we have in the New Testament. They tell the story of Jesus, that He was the promised Messiah, that He came and that He lived, that He died on the cross, was raised from the dead, and now reigns at the right hand of God the Father. And we have the opportunity to become Christians, to be a part of His church, and to have eternal life. That's a wonderful story. That's good news. But Paul, the apostle, when writing to the Galatians, uses the word gospel several times in the first couple of chapters. Now, we don't always think of looking to Galatians to find out about the gospel. But if I want to understand the good news, if I want to be able to share the good news with other people, I have to know what Paul says in the book of Galatians. I have to know what he says in the first ten verses about the gospel, what the gospel means, where it comes from, and what I should know about it. And so this morning, as we think about good news that we can offer the world, I'd like for us to turn to the first chapter of Galatians. If you haven't already done that, I'd encourage you to do so. It's on page 1033 of your pew Bible. While you're turning there, let me tell you, if you're visiting with us, we're thrilled to have you here, and we want to serve you in any way possible. You're our honored guests, and we hope that we can get to know you after our time of worship together. It's interesting to watch Paul as he writes his other New Testament letters, usually in the first chapter, there is a greeting or a salutation. 
where Paul will say who he is, he will give his identity, and then he will tell the church there what he's praying about for them, what he's thankful for that they've been doing. But Paul doesn't do that with the book of Galatians. If you'll notice in verse 6, he jumps right into the core message of his letter. Now, I won't ask for a show of hands here, but how many of you have ever gotten in serious trouble from one of your parents? Maybe not a parent, maybe it's been another family member. But have you ever noticed that when a child gets in trouble with a parent, and the parent confronts the child about it, especially if it's something serious, have you ever noticed there's not a lot of small talk that goes on there? You know, the parents don't ask how their day was, or what they've been doing lately, or what kinds of TV shows they've been watching, or how their homework's going. The parents get right to the point. Because if something's been done that they're confronting a child about, they need to know, hey, did you do this? We need to talk about this. We need to discuss why this was wrong. I think we see that same attitude in Paul. You can almost hear as he begins in verse 6 by saying, I marvel that you were turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel. There's not a lot of small talk here. We can almost just feel Paul's frustration and, and, and his anger that, that they would be turning from the gospel that he'd given to the Galatians. And so it's interesting to see as he continues in verse 7, he says, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. What could make Paul so upset that he would say there are those who are perverting the gospel of Christ? In order for us to understand that, we're going to need to go back in time. We're going to need to go back in time and put ourselves in the place of those Jews who would have first become Christians. First century Jewish Christians, what would it have been like if you had lived your entire life in the Jewish faith? Your parents were Jewish, and their parents were Jewish, and you knew all the stories of the Old Testament. You knew about Moses. You knew about Abraham. You knew about King David. And you knew about the judges and the prophets and the kings. And all of those stories we read about in the Old Testament, you would learn those from the time you were a child. You also knew that those prophecies pointed to a Messiah, to a Savior. And then Jesus comes and you find out that he is the Messiah. He's fulfilling these prophecies, and you want to begin following him. You obey his words. You put him on in baptism. You become a member of the church. And as you look around the church, you start to realize that there are some Gentiles that are also becoming members of the church. Now, this wouldn't have been totally new to those who were Jews. There were Gentiles who could convert to Judaism, but when they converted to becoming Jews, they were circumcised, and they started following the dietary laws. This food is clean, this is unclean. They started keeping the holy days and the feasts. But as you look at these Gentiles who are coming into the church, you see that they're not doing that. They're becoming Christians. And that these apostles are saying that now that we are under the new covenant, all of these things we did in the old covenant that you had kept since you were a young child this Sabbath day, or clean and unclean foods, those aren't necessary anymore. And so you see these Gentiles who are coming in, and they don't have to become Jews before they become Christians. Now, that would have been very upsetting for those in the first century. And here we see Paul reacting to several who were going around saying, wait a minute, we need to keep these traditions from the Old Covenant in here too. We need to keep these boundary markers. I mean, this gives us our identity. We need to make sure that we're keeping these holy days. We need to make sure that we're remembering the Sabbath. But Paul is telling them not that we should discard the Old Testament or forget about it, but now we're under a new covenant. And Paul had given that message to the Galatians. They'd obviously become confused because of those people who it's understandable for us to see their motivation, but they were taking the gospel and they were changing it into something it wasn't. And so Paul is very upset. He dives right in in verse 6, 
and it gets to the heart of his message. And so as we look at the rest of these verses, let's begin reading in verse 8. Paul gets so serious that he says, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Now these are some interesting verses. This is an interesting passage. But we are far removed from Paul's original audience. We don't live in Galatia. We're not part of that church that was there in the first century. We're not dealing with the same issues they're dealing with. So what lessons could we learn from what Paul has written to the Galatians? As we begin this quarter in our adult Bible classes, we're studying this book together. In fact, if you were here for Bible class this morning, you studied these verses in class. And as we go through Paul's letter, I think there are several lessons we can learn from the book of Galatians. There are several principles that we can apply in our life. And specifically in these ten verses, this short passage, we see two principles that as Christians today in the 21st century, we, we can begin applying. Number one, according to the Galatians, the gospel according to the Galatians states that the gospel begins in the Old Testament. Now I want you to think about that for a second. The gospel begins in the Old Testament. Now, we're not used to thinking in those terms. Usually, when we want to read the beginning of the gospel, we go to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew. And that does tell us the story of Jesus. But I'd like for us to remember that the gospel in the New Testament is a fulfillment of the Old Testament. Jesus was not here to teach against the Old Testament, but to fulfill it. If that sounds familiar, it's because Jesus said it himself during his ministry. When Matthew 5 and 17, he said, Do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I come not to destroy, but to fulfill. In other words, Jesus is telling his listeners, what I'm saying doesn't go against the Old Testament. It's merely the fulfillment of it. In fact, it's interesting that one of the ways we know Jesus was the Messiah, the promised Son of God, is because through his ministry, he fulfills all of these prophecies in the Old Testament. Years and years before Jesus came on the scene, Old Testament prophets talked about what the Messiah would do. Old Testament psalmists hinted at what the Messiah would be like. And as Jesus goes through his ministry, he fulfills all of these prophecies. In fact, we could spend the entire remainder of the morning looking at those prophecies Jesus fulfilled. It would be impossible for a man just to happen to, by coincidence, fulfill all those. And so as we see Jesus fulfilling the old law, that's one of the ways we know that he's the Son of God. It's also important to see what Paul links the gospel back to because in the book of Galatians, Paul links the gospel all the way back to Genesis. If you would turn over just a, a couple of chapters to Galatians chapter 3, I want us to look at a verse Paul writes there. He says, "...in the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel, the good news, to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. Now that's pretty significant. Paul is linking the gospel of Jesus Christ back to God appearing to Abraham saying, I will bless all nations through you. Now that would have been important because think of who Paul's talking to. He's talking to those people who, are, who have, have been confused by the Judaizers who were trying to say that we, you need to become a Jew before you can become a Christian. Paul is saying becoming a Christian fulfills the promise God made to Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. 
He's saying that God preached the gospel, the good news to Abraham, and that through his seed, through his nation, all nations would be blessed. And so as we see Jesus come as the Messiah, we know that's a fulfillment of the promise that God made to Abraham. Now that's interesting. We don't often think about the gospel beginning in the book of Genesis. But Paul links it back to the book of Genesis. He ties it all together. It's not that the new covenant makes us put aside the old one. It's that it fulfills it. It complements it. And it's important for us to remember that. In fact, he would even call Christians later on in that chapter heirs of Abraham in Galatians 3 and verse 29. You probably know the song, Father Abraham, that we sing in VBS and in Pew Packers. Don't worry, we're not going to sing that right now or anything. But as we think about the song, Father Abraham, oftentimes we forget about the words. Father Abraham had many sons. I am one of them, and so are you. Well, how do we become sons of Abraham? Is that something we take literally? No, here Paul is saying, when we become Christians, we are heirs of Abraham. We're heirs to that promise that God made to Abraham all the way back in the book of Genesis that's realized in the life and the ministry and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And once we obey that, once we become Christians, we've become an heir of Abraham. Sometimes we forget that the Old Testament is so closely connected with the New Testament. It's tempting for us sometimes to look at the Old Testament over here and the New Testament over here and to think, well, the Old Testament is so confusing and the New Testament talks about Jesus and it's a little easier for me to understand and maybe I'll just focus only on this and just kind of put it aside. Now, obviously, Paul is telling the people here they're under a new covenant. The whole point of Galatians is that they don't have to keep those, those boundary markers that gave them their identity under the old law. We're under a new law. As Christians today, we're under a new law. But the Old Testament is still so important. The gospel begins there. And if we want to understand the gospel, we must understand the Old Testament. Later on in the book of Galatians, Paul would say that the old law is our tutor that leads us to Christ. In verse 24 of chapter 3, our, our schoolmaster that leads us to Christ. Now recently, we, I say we, I didn't, but those who are school age here went back to school. And those of you who are teachers went back to school as well. Now, I grew up with an elementary school teacher. My mother is here with us. She taught elementary school. Catherine teaches elementary school. And so I've heard the comment made more than once that it seems like you go a whole summer, and then what happens when they come back to school? They forget everything they learned last year. Now, I've never been there as a teacher, but I've definitely been there as a student. You come back and you're trying to get in the swing of things and you start thinking, now, I know I heard about that. The teacher writes something on the board. I've studied that before, but that's been three months ago. That's been a long time ago. How effective would we be in junior high or in middle school if we forgot everything we learned in elementary school? How effective would we be in college if we forgot everything we learned in high school? How effectively can we understand the New Testament if we don't listen to what our tutor, what our schoolmaster, the Old Testament, has to teach us about it? There are aspects of the New Testament we'll never understand unless we study and appreciate the Old Testament. And so as we think about that, that's a real-life principle, I think, that we can use in our lives, that there, is, there are things we'll never grasp unless we understand the Old Testament. Here's an example. In 1 Corinthians in 5 and verse 7, Paul refers to Christ as our Passover lamb. Now, if I want to understand Christ as a Passover lamb, I'll need to understand what a Passover lamb was. And so as we go through, let's just look quickly at characteristics that the two share. There are verses on, that will be on the screen behind me. We won't have time to flip to all of those, but you can mark those down and study those as we go through. First over, when we, first, when we look back at the Passover, 
in the book of Exodus, we see that we're in the middle of the ten plagues, and we're coming right to the end of that tenth plague. And so as, as we go through, God gives the Israelites very clear instructions about what's going to happen during this tenth plague and what they need to do. They need to select a Passover lamb. And so if we could look at some of these characteristics, they were very specific about what the Passover lamb would be. First of all, it had to be a lamb without defect, with, without fault. This couldn't be the runt of the litter or one that was sick that you were trying to get rid of. This had to be a perfect lamb. Well, when we look in the New Testament, we see that Jesus lived a life without sin, without defect. So there's a parallel right there. Jesus, as our Passover lamb, was without sin. Also, a Passover lamb had to have the, the blood placed on the doorpost so that the Israelite dwelling would be passed over during that final plague, the death of the firstborn. Well, when we think of Jesus in the New Testament, as he was on the cross and his blood runs down that wooden cross, that blood offers us redemption. It offers us a chance at life. Not physical life, but eternal life. So there's another parallel. It's also interesting to note that when the Passover lamb was being prepared, none of its bones were broken. That was part of the preparation of the Passover lamb. And when we read John's Gospel, John tells us that although the soldiers were accustomed to breaking the legs of those on the cross to speed up the death, that way they couldn't push up with their legs to get air, they didn't do that with Jesus. None of his bones were broken. And so Jesus, as a Passover lamb, has that same prophecy fulfilled. None of his bones were broken. Also, we see the Passover lamb was the center of a sacred meal. The Passover wasn't something they did once. They did that all through the history of the Israelite nation so that they could remember what God had done for, it, for them. We've just uh, had a chance to take the Lord's Supper together as a church family. And when we do that, Christ is the center of our thoughts because we're thinking about that sacrifice. Also, the Passover lamb represented God's deliverance. In that case, he was delivering Israel out of Egypt. When we think of Christ as our Passover lamb, we think of deliverance from sin. And so it's interesting to see the parallels there. Now, if I didn't know about the Passover lamb in the Old Testament, I would have missed out on those aspects that Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians. So the gospel begins in the Old Testament. Another principle that I think we can learn from these short verses is that the gospel refuses compromise. Notice what Paul says in verse 10 of Galatians 1. He says, at the very end, for if I still pleased men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. He is not out to please men. Even those Judaizers who were trying to take the law and conform it to the old law, he was not out to please them with the gospel. He wanted to please one individual and one individual only, and that was God. And it's interesting to see that once it, the gospel has changed it, it ceases to be the gospel. In fact, when he describes in verse 6 the different gospel, in verse 7 he says, which is not another. Some translations say it's really no gospel at all. If you take the gospel of Jesus Christ and you change it, it ceases to become the gospel. In their context, if they were to take the gospel and to put all of these customs from the old law in and change it around to appeal to them, it would cease to be the gospel. The same thing is true for us. It doesn't mean the old law is unimportant or should be overlooked. It just must be properly understood. We have to know that. And Paul was very serious about the consequences of those who changed God's word. Did you catch that in verses 8 and 9, how serious Paul was about this? He says, even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you, let him be accursed. And then he says the same thing in verse 9. Even angels aren't exempt from this command. Even if an angel preaches something different. That's how serious this is. And Paul is serious because the consequences are grave. 
If Satan could confuse us about the way to be saved, he will have won a great victory. And Paul says it is very, very serious business when we start to change the gospel. Our challenge is to share the gospel in love, but to do it without compromise. If we were to take any of the human mindset and attitude that fills our country and, and let that, that affect the way we preach the gospel and let that change the gospel, we'll be making the same mistake. It would be easy in our society that would emphasize permissiveness and kind of everything goes as long as we're all sincere. It would be easy to let some of that bleed over into how we preach the gospel. But as soon as we change the gospel to fit in with our society, it ceases to be the gospel. It would be tempting as Christians to take the gospel, the, the loving truth of the gospel, but to present it in a way that doesn't reflect the love of Christ or His compassion or God's love for people. It would easy, be easy to present it in a hateful, even a spiteful way. But once we've done that, we've changed the very essence of the gospel. And once we change the essence of the gospel, it ceases to be the good news. You see, we've got to make sure that we don't compromise God's message. We might be able to change our methods to make them more relevant, but we can't ever compromise the message. Another real-life principle that can affect us in the 21st century that I think Paul illustrates is there's a difference between doing everything we can to reach people with the gospel and doing everything we can to please people with the gospel. There's a difference between reaching others and pleasing others. And I think there's a, a very good example that Paul gives us in Acts 17 on his famous sermon on Mars Hill. We don't have time to flip there and to look through all of those verses, but let me set the stage as Paul is speaking before the Areopagus. He's speaking to Greek Athenians who worshipped several different gods. There were idols all over their city, and they're very interested in what Paul has to say. He starts out by doing some things that help him find common ground. In verse 22, he talks about how they're very religious. They are superstitious. They're very religious in the worship of their false gods. He refers to their city, that he's walked through their city, looked at their idols. And he even quotes their poets in verse 28. So Paul gets on their level. He meets them where they are. But notice what happens uh, throughout the sermon as well. He does not ever compromise the gospel. He can change the method which he presents it, but he never changes the message. He tells them that, that they have been worshiping in ignorance. There are some things they didn't know. Now, these are Athenians who would have prided themselves on knowledge. So this was a pretty serious claim for Paul to say, I know something that you don't. He also said that there was one true God. All of the idols they would have grown up with, Paul is saying, no, there's one true God. And then at the end, he talks about the resurrection from the dead, which is eventually what ended his sermon, because they just couldn't handle that idea. They would laugh at someone who believed in the resurrection from the dead. And when Paul brings it up, immediately that sermon comes to an end. They're not listening anymore. Paul had to know they would have reacted that way. And yet he wasn't going to compromise the gospel. He was going to do what he could to reach men, but he wasn't going to change the gospel to please men. Just a couple of months ago, as we were on a mission trip to the Ukraine, several of us from here had many amazing opportunities. One of those was to study with a man named Maxime, who worked at the orphanage there. And he had come from a very different background where there were very special religious traditions that they upheld, and it didn't match up with what we read in the New Testament. But he was very eager to learn about the Bible and to ask a lot of questions. And so as we were studying, we got to one of our sessions that lasted about two and a half hours. And as, as we were sitting there and he was going through and talking about what we'd studied with the Church of the New Testament in his church, there came a time where we had to compare the two. And we had to confront the reality that 
what he'd been doing didn't line up with what God's will was. And I was pausing to think of the best way to phrase that in a way that would come across in just the right way, and the translator who was there with me just gave me a little bit of a grin and said, you know, he's not going to like this, and just kind of smiled at me. Well, the good news is he had a great attitude, and he was willing to study and willing to think about it. Nothing happened overnight, but he was thinking about those things. But as, as I reflected back on that statement, you know, he's not going to like this. I thought, as Christians, we find ourselves in that position a lot, don't we? Where someone asks us a question at work, and what do you think about this? Well, they're not going to like this, but here's what the Bible says. Or at school, what do you think? Is it okay for me to do this? Well, you're not going to like this, but here's what the Bible says. And sometimes, if we're not careful, if we feel like someone's not going to like our response, we'll be tempted just not to give one. Well, I'll overlook that issue. Even though they do need to know more about becoming a Christian, I'll just put that aside because that could be unpleasant. They might disagree with you. It's tempting to do that. But Paul would let us know that we don't ever change the message. No matter what the reaction might be, we present it in love, but we present the truth. And so as we think about the Old Testament, we realize that that's where we see the roots of the gospel. The gospel begins in the Old Testament. And the gospel also refuses compromise. Several of you in here, and I know because I've talked to you about it, can remember the days when preachers would take around uh, bed sheets. I don't know, you, you may not have heard of this, but there would be bed sheets they would put up that had the charts of the different sermons. There would be pictures and illustrations. And as you'd go through, the preacher would put up a bed sheet and just preach that message. Well, we don't have bed sheets today, but we do have a screen behind us. We have... Uh, PowerPoint that we use. Well, what's the difference? The method may have changed, but the message is still the same. We can change our methods to be relevant, but we should never change our message. So we realize that the gospel begins in the Old Testament and that the gospel refuses compromise. And as we arm ourselves with those facts, we can share the good news with our world. Our world desperately needs to hear good news. It's our responsibility to share it. You may remember a couple of weeks ago, when George Hyatt, who had been convicted of robbery, was being led in, in Kingston, Tennessee, to his jail cell. And then Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Hyatt, his wife, came and she, she fired on the guards. They escaped and they were on the lamb, they were on the run. And as they were in Kentucky, they were trying to get a ride to Columbus, Ohio. And so they called the taxi driver and the taxi cab pulled up and they got inside and as he was driving, they, they felt like they needed to give a cover story for this long distance. Why would they be going so far? So they said that they were Amway salesmen, and they were going to a convention, an Amway convention. Later, that cab driver was interviewed on the early show with CBS. And let me preface this by saying, I have nothing against Amway salesmen. This is a direct quote. But all of us who have ever done anything in sales know that you need to be assertive, and you need to be aggressive at times. And when they asked him what tipped him off, what was the one fact that helped him understand that their story was bogus, helped him call the cops, and helped them eventually be apprehended, he said, well, they said they were Amway salesmen, but he said, I've been around Amway salesmen before, and they weren't very pushy about their products. That was his quote on national TV. That was his quote. Now, like I said, I'm not out to offend any salesman, but we all know if we're going to sell something, we have to be assertive, don't we? We have to be aggressive. If we have some good news, if we're convinced that the gospel we have, the gospel of Jesus Christ, will save people's lives, won't we be aggressive? Won't we want to share that with other people? And I thought it was interesting. He said their story didn't wash because he knew 
what an, an Amway salesman would do in that situation. And they weren't excited about their product. They weren't assertive about it. I wonder sometimes if that's not the same with Christians. We have the gospel. We have the good news. And when we're in positions to share it and we don't, what does that say about us? Is there anybody that we know that might say, well, you know, I've met Christians before, but I don't know if he's a Christian because he's not that excited about his product. He doesn't want to share his product. I've known people that believed in God before, but she doesn't look like she's very excited about it. I don't know if she does. Let's reflect on that this week. Let's reflect on the good news we have. A world that needs good news, we're right here in the middle of it. Are we sharing what we have? Are we sharing that good news with other people? If we were convinced it was true, I'm convinced that we would. And I know that there are so many here that do that on a regular basis are a wonderful encouragement to me and to others. Let's all do that. Let's all leave this week sharing the good news in a world that needs it so desperately. My question to you is, do you need some good news this morning? You may be here and this is the first time you've heard the gospel presented. This is the first time you've heard that good news. Well, you can respond to it. You can submit to God's will, put Christ on in baptism, and you can become a member of the church. Not because it's something that we said, but because the Lord adds those to His church who submit their will to His. And you can have a brand new Christian family that would love nothing more than to be called your brothers or sisters in Christ. It may be that you're already in that situation, but there is another need that you have that you need to make known, that you'd like prayers, or there's another way that we can help you. If there's any way we can help you respond to the good news, please come as we stand and sing together.